Welcome to the Honest Broker Podcast. I'm Roger Pelkey, Jr. Today, I interview Kelvin Drogemeyer. Dr. Drogemeyer was the scientific advisor to President Trump uh, for the last several years of his term in office. Kelvin and I talk about a number of things, including climate change, COVID, uh, lab leak possibility, uh, it's an interesting interview. Just as background, uh, over the last almost 20 years, I've interviewed eight now science advisors uh, to former presidents of the United States. Kelvin is the most recent interviewee. Uh, I've interviewed science advisors from the Kennedy administration all the way through Obama. I uh, hope you enjoy it. All right. So I'm with Kelvin Drogemeyer today, who's a professor at the University of Oklahoma, but the, the occasion of our conversation is to talk about his time as a science advisor to President Trump. And uh, before I turn it over to you, Kelvin, to introduce yourself, uh, I'll just say this is the eighth interview I've done with uh, presidential science advisors. And so I'm really appreciative that you uh, joined join the club of uh, folks uh, <laughs> sitting down to chat about your experiences uh, in science and policy and politics. So Kelvin, so first thing, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how'd you get to be President Trump's science advisor? Well, well, thanks a lot, Roger. I really appreciate you doing this and really appreciate all the good work you've uh, you've done. It's great to see you again. Um, a little bit about myself. I, as you say, I've been uh, at the University of Oklahoma now for 38 years, a professor of meteorology. I did my grad work at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, came here right out of grad school and have, a, have had a wonderful ride here at, uh, at OU. Um, I've had the occasion to be on the National Science Board and on the governor's cabinet as her science technology secretary. And um, I think part of that played into the potential of being uh, the director of the Office of Science Technology Policy and the President Science Advisor. Um, just, you know, sort of visibility in national circles and, and things like that. Um, and I honestly, I think when when the president got elected and they were looking for individuals, I think they were looking around and saying, OK, you know, who who is out there that would uh, would, would do this sort of thing? And, and you know, um, Let's face it, folks in, in academia tend to be on the liberal side, not not entirely, but tend to be, tend to lean liberal. And of course, I'm I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, but I'm also sort of a, a centrist in a lot of ways, really. I, I kind of don't like labels. But I think people started looking around, various people at APLU and AAU and national academies and saying, you know, who who would be out there who could really, really do this and maybe uh, you know be of the right persuasion. And uh, and somehow they landed on me and I started getting some phone calls. Actually, uh, uh, it was in July, I believe, of 20, 2017, I got a, a call from Michael Kratzios, who at that time was sort of running OSTP. Uh, he was deputy assistant to the president and uh, just called me up and, and said, hey, I'd like to get your thoughts about you know the future of science in, in the U.S. And so I didn't really think much about it. And then he called back again in August, and uh, it became a little bit more clear. And I, I remember talking to Neil Lane, said, "Neil, I, I think I think they're wanting me potentially to be the OSTP director." And I, it just blew me away. I was completely flabbergasted by that. And, uh, and Neil is is a great friend, and and I think one of the, the wisest men around. Uh, and so and, we talked. And Neil about Neil was a science advisor to President Clinton. Yeah, so, President Clinton, and also director of the National Science Foundation. You know, right. He has all, all three degrees from the University of Oklahoma in physics. So I've known Neil for a long yeah. time. Uh, you know, and he's he just he's just terrific. He, he and his wife. And uh, and then it, everything went dark, completely dark for like four months. And then I started getting a few more calls in early 2018. And uh, and then a, a final call in April, I believe, of 2018 from the presidential personnel office where they said, hey, would you be willing to do this? And I was 
continue to be flabbergasted by the whole thing. I, I just, you know, I know John Holder, no Neil Lane, Rita, or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, other people who've been uh, OSDP director. And I'm like, I am not, I'm not John Holder and I'm not Neil Lane. I'm not their caliber of people of, of intelligence and, and awareness and, and so on. Um, but but one thing stuck with me that Peter McPherson, uh, at that time president of APLU, said, he said, Kelvin, you're the right person uh, at this time. And I that really meant a lot that Peter said that. So I accepted and um, they announced me, uh, I think it was it was in May of, of 2018. And then I started uh, doing prep for my confirmation hearing, which was held, I believe, in August. And uh, I got voted out of committee in September. Very, very fast track. But then, then things went into a kind of a holding pattern as the government shutdown was looming and things like that. Uh, there were, I think, controversial issues of Supreme Court nominees and stuff. So uh, there was a new Congress starting in 2019. So if I didn't get confirmed uh, in that, that current Congress, I would have to be renominated. And I told him, I said, well, frankly, that would mean I'd probably come in in mid-2019. That's potentially a year and a half. That's just not enough time to really do anything. But literally at the 11th hour, I think it was on January 2nd or something like that, uh, I got confirmed uh, by the by the full Senate. And, uh, and I was um, up in Washington a couple of days later. I had everything packed, ready to go, uh, and had uh, an apartment set up, ready to go. It was basically a dorm room, glorified dorm room. And so on the my commission was signed the 4th of January of 2019, and I was officially sworn in the 11th, and then ceremonially sworn in by Vice President Pence on the uh, 11th of February. So that's how it all played out. And, um, you know, it was uh, just a tremendous opportunity, but something I, I, I felt somewhat equipped for. But but again, looking at the preceding previous directors, I didn't feel I was I was anywhere close to their capability. But uh, nevertheless, that's where I was. <laughs> well, here's I have, a, I have a it's a nerdy, wonky science policy question that science policy aficionados will appreciate. Um, you carried the title of uh, director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is right. a congressionally mandated office inside the executive office of the president. Um, historically, uh, this quote unquote science advisor also carries a second title, which is a special advisor to the president. And you didn't carry that second title during your term. Um, That's right. Can you explain it? Was that meaningful? Was that significant? Um, how should we outside you know, the White House view those two different hats that you're expected to wear? Yeah, that's a great question, Roger. And it's something that that the media gets confused about all the time. There's actually sort of three titles in play. One is OSCP director, as you said. The second one is science advisor of the president, which is not, it's, it's sort of a very informal kind of title. It just automatically kind of attaches to the OSCP director. And the third one is assistant to the president. So in the in the White House um, uh, core, in the, in the you know, core of individuals there, there's uh, the special assistant to the president, which is sort of here, there's deputy assistant to the president, and then there's assistant to the president. So assistant to the president means that you're sort of at the highest rung of the ladder. And I was not uh, assistant to the president, as you say. John Holdren was, Neil Lane was, I believe. John Marburger, uh, when when uh, he, he was not assistant to the president. So I don't know if it's a Republican versus Democrat thing. I'm not sure. People on the outside, I think, it, it means very little, honestly. On the inside, it can be pretty important, as I came to find, uh, although ultimately, to me, titles don't matter. What matters is what you do, and people get to know you. doesn't matter if you really have a title. But if you are assistant to the president, you are sort of at a higher level of, uh, you know, in terms of being viewed as a principal, pardon me, a principal by your colleagues. But I was a formal principal in things like the uh, CFIUS, a Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., and, and a lot of things like that. 
Um, so it does matter in the hierarchy, honestly, in, in some cases, but uh, for whatever reason, I was not, and uh, they chose yep. not to do it. And I didn't argue for it. I felt like, hey, and in fact, I actually did ask the question, though, when they first time called me, uh, PPO called me in April of, of 2018 to ask me, I said, would this also be assisted the president? And at the time, they, they kind of said, well, we're not sure. And so I said, well, that's fine. You know, yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, I think I think technically um, the director of OSTP can always be hauled before Congress to testify compelled. And I think it's a lot more difficult if you're an assistant to the president. It so. is. That, that's one of the big differences is, yeah, exactly, is claiming executive privilege and so right. on. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, Congress can compel you. They can subpoena you or whatever. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right. Right. So 20, let's talk about 2019 and then we'll talk about 2020 separately. But in, in 2019, so what was your experience like in the White House? Did you, you know, how often did you meet with the president? Had you met him before? What were your interactions like? Um, yeah, I'd never met him before. Um, and, you know, I came in two years into the administration. So it was a very interesting situation, frankly. Um, you know, Michael Kratzios had come in basically at day one and set a lot of things up, uh, had a lot of good things going. His his major focus was on the so-called industries of the future, the five uh, five pillars, 5G, uh, quantum, AI, and so on. And so I came in and I, I asked myself, OK, how can I add value? Um, and so what I really thought of was, OK, I'm an academic coming in with an academic perspective. Um, I know research pretty well. Being a vice president for research for 10 years, you really get to work with all disciplines. So I was fairly, and also being on the science board for 12 years, I, I felt like I was pretty conversant with a lot of other disciplines. So I decided that really one of the things that I would really focus on was the uh, uh, the environment in which research takes place. Uh, so I, I created the first ever position called assistant director uh, for uh, academic engagement of OSTP. So the engaging with the academic community, I thought was extremely important. Um, not that that had never happened before, it certainly had, um, but I think OSTP through the National Science Technology Council primarily engages with the interagency, the 26 R&D agencies that, uh, that fund research and so on. And I felt like we needed to have a stronger tie to the academic community. So, so I did that and then uh, created within NSTC this thing called the Joint Committee on the Research Environment, JCOR. And there were four uh, pillars of that of that committee, one of which was was research security, which exists today and was uh, heavily responsible for writing with the National Security Council, the National Security Presidential Memorandum 33, uh, which kind of laid the foundation for all the research security activities that are happening now. So, um, but I felt really ultimately when you think about research and, and, and as a VPR and as a faculty member, I really always thought about the environment in which research happens. Is it is it safe and inclusive? Safe, not just in terms of laboratory safety, but is it is it is it safe in the sense of, of say, research security? Is it safe for people that have different viewpoints and so on? Uh, there's the whole you know STEM education thing, workforce development, research security. Um, uh, the administrative workload was something I felt very strongly about. Uh, I'd been on the COGA board, the Council on Government Research, for several years, and and uh, also on the science board. I was on a, a committee that that looked at the research administrative burden and which is uh, roughly 42 to 44% of the time that faculty and universities spend on fairly funded research is spent on administration unrelated to the research. So those are some of the drivers I really felt like, let's reduce the administrative workload, let's make sure the environments are safe and inclusive, and let's make sure that, that research security is, is out there and, and so on. So that became kind of my focus, although uh, honestly, a lot of people don't realize, uh, except if you're director of OSTP or you work there, that there's about 80 or 90 different policy streams going on at any one time. So when I was preparing for my confirmation hearing, I was coming up to speed on lots and lots of things 
from you know, space weather to uh, PFAS and PFOS chemicals to you know, uh, you know, all kinds of issues uh, that were being worked. And the other thing I think a lot of folks don't realize is that um, that uh, OSTB is very heavily involved in a lot of national security matters. One of the, the core pillars there is a national security portfolio, which has a lot of fairly deeply classified work associated with it. So, uh, so yeah, that that's kind of uh, what I brought to OSTP. Um, somebody asked me one time, so what's your legacy? What do you want your legacy to be? And I said, well, this isn't about Kelvin Drogemeyer. This is about the nation. Uh, so it's not me leaving a legacy. It's me doing what I can to help the U.S. Uh, you know, maintain its competitiveness in research and development and technology and so on and become ever more strong on the world stage. That was really my goal uh, through the whole thing. And uh, that's that's all I really thought of. I didn't think anything. And I don't think they meant, you know, what are you going to be known for? But the word legacy, I just don't like that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. right. Well, I, I asked all of uh, the previous science advisors that I talked to, um, you know, about the balance uh, that they viewed of their responsibilities between directing OSTP, which is a, you know, it's a small agency, um, right. versus giving presidential, actual presidential science advice. Um, were there instances when President Trump, you know, sent a message down or called on you or, or actually said, you know, we have a question that we need answered? This is, and again, this is 2019 right. before the pandemic. Yeah. Right. And you had asked that question, you know, how often do I meet with the president and so on? My, my primary interaction, I'd say, with the West Wing came uh, through uh, the deputy uh, chief of staff for policy, Chris Liddell, who's a fantastic individual, brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, he'd, uh, he'd been at very high level positions at Microsoft and, uh, and other places and uh, really an extraordinary individual and also the chief of staff, which there were like three or four of them while I was there. Um, Ivanka was somebody also I worked very closely with, very inquisitive mind, very smart woman, uh, interested in lots of things, science, uh, and, and asked tough questions. She's a very, very smart person. The president really didn't, I would say, overall, um, you know, send down questions or things like that. We were mainly working through the individuals I mentioned. We did meet in the Oval Office of the president on a number of occasions. I'd say probably eight, 10 times during the two years I was there. Uh, you know, on sometimes we go brief him on on hurricanes. We talk about you know various issues, five uh, G, uh, freeing up spectrum, and things like that. Um, but I, you know, I, I would say he he basically let let us do our thing with with the science and technology uh, area. He of course was very interested in other issues of you know of, of immigration and jobs and National Council for the American Worker, which he created and so on, which I was involved with. But really, most of it was with through was through Chris Liddell um, and and through Ivanka in particular. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, that's a very common theme that we have that that every president aligns his advisors and his staff in the way that best fits you know his administration. And the the science advisor position is a very uh, at least historically a very fluid uh, position that's you know unique to each individual. I have to ask when when. Um, I got to know Jack Marburger really well, and one of his great, uh, he says, one of his great disappointments was how his peers in the academic community responded to him signing on to work with the Bush administration. Um, and I was wondering, you know, how, how, how was and how is today the reaction? Because obviously Donald Trump is a polarizing figure in American right. politics, um, not even, you know, Republican, Democrat, just Donald Trump. Um, how have your peers responded, you know, when you first were announced and, you know, now that you're back on campus? 
Yeah, no, that, that's a really great question, Roger. Uh, the support was really overwhelming and heartening. Uh, I think people said, you know, thank you for doing this. This is, you know, what I got nominated. We really appreciate you doing this. It's going to be tough. Um, I thought a lot of people sort of thought I might be the climate savior coming in because as a meteorologist, obviously, I understand the climate is changing and, and so on. And it was disappointing a lot of times to see the press try to drive a wedge between the president and me. But basically, I said, look, um, you know, you, you can disagree with people, but we did agree on the fact that, you know, you don't have to upend and destroy the economy to, to address climate change. Uh, and that was basically where I went with that. Uh, and, and so and it was it was a fine place to be. I mean, you know, um, Senator Inhofe here in Oklahoma, you know, his his feelings about climate are pretty well known. Uh, but yet when you talk to to Jim about you know, about drought and things like that, he he really understands it. So it, it really is the approach you're taking. taking. But um, I, I received a great deal of support. And even after I left the White House, uh, People said, you know, we really are glad you did that. We really appreciate the work you did. I, I a lot of times will joke, and but in truthfulness, I say, you know, you see a lot of things we did, and we put out this report uh, that that described all the things. And when people look at that, they're they're dumbfounded. They're like, oh my god, I didn't realize you did all these things. Uh, but I tell them, I said, what you don't know are the things that we kept from happening, and that you'll never know about. But we prevented them from happening. And it's not. I don't mean that in a bad way against the president or whatever. It's just that sometimes there are things that that, you know, decisions that might get made that you sort of, you know, talk people down from it or whatever. And, and that's, that's an interesting aspect of the job as well. Um, so no, I was not vilified. There were a few hit pieces written about me, which I thought were quite distasteful and, and, and frankly, uh, completely wrong, but being at the white house and you know, this better than anybody, Roger, a lot of times, you know, the facts, but you can't tell them to anybody. Uh, and, and of course, public opinion is, well, you know, it usually goes to the most negative position. It goes to the most far outrageous conclusion, which is completely false, but you can't go correct the narrative. You simply can't, it, you know, either for national security reasons, economic reasons, political reasons, or whatever. And you just have to sit there and, and bear it. And, uh, you know, Neil Lane told me one time, he said, you know, there, you just, you have, just have to have to grit your teeth and, and go with it. And that's part of the privilege and the honor of being in that position of, of just saying, look, I'll take the hit. I'll take the hit. It's fine. Um, so it's David, been, been great support, Roger. Actually, That's great to hear. Ed David, who was a science advisor to, to Richard Nixon, uh, when he when he visited our campus, uh, he told a story about how Richard Nixon wanted to change the dates of the Apollo launches um, so that they weren't before the upcoming election, just in case there was a tragedy or something right. like that. And uh, he, Ed David had to explain to him orbital mechanics and the timing of launches and that you can't alter them for political reasons. All right. Sure. So when 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 history looks back at your time in the White House, you know, it probably won't be 2019 that people focus on. Um, so so can you just tell us, you know, when did you hear about the pandemic? Where were you? Um, when were you ever called in in any kind of capacity in, in late December, early January? Just, I mean, tell us about those days. Yeah, no, that you're, you're right. That was very interesting. Um, you know, things were going along really well. And we started to hear news reports of I think my first recollection is in Washington State or Oregon, somewhere in the far northwest, about this disease starting to spread, and then all of a sudden you you, you saw it really start to to um, catch fire. And I remember being in the Situation Room. Uh, we had a meeting. The Vice President, no, I don't, I don't believe the Vice President was there, but Chris Liddell was there. And I remember Chris saying, again, Deputy Chief of Staff. And when was this? Was this in this early was, 
uh, boy, it was probably December or January, uh, okay. January 2019. He said, you know, we need to create a task force. Uh, we need to create a special, a special task force for this thing because this is this is looking to be big. And so, um, I don't know, week later or whatever, uh, they announced that there would be a coronavirus task force, the president's coronavirus task force that the vice president would chair. And so, um, gosh, there for a while uh, in January, February, we were meeting three or four times a day. Uh, things were moving very quickly. There were cruise ships that were out there. Uh, what do you do with those? What do you do with the people? Uh, you know, what do you do with folks coming back from Europe? I mean, it, it, there was a lot of unknown at this point. Uh, and so we met to, to really try to adjudicate all of those challenges all at the same time. At the same time, while we were really saying, okay, let's understand the virus, let's characterize it, let's figure out what's going on there and, and so on. Um, I was formally, I was involved with those meetings, but I was formally put on the task force. I think it was in March. I actually, yeah, I think it was first of March. I looked first it up. Of March, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, we we met we met very very frequently, and they were very good discussions. I think, um, uh, you know, it's easy to sit back and criticize, but we, you know, whether or not you feel we had a playbook or not, we we were, I think, doing the best we could with the information we had. Um, at OSTP, our focus was really on, uh, you know, reaching out, especially for me, convening uh, presidents and chancellors of universities, convening faculty, uh, trying to understand what do you need, what are you dealing with, uh, and can we work with OMB to um, to say delay some reports that are due or or change some regulations temporarily or whatever because you're having to shut down laboratories. How do you pay students? There's all manner of these challenges that had to be addressed. But I also convened a group of epidemiological modelers, partly in person, partly virtually. I said, okay, you guys are on the front lines. We need your help. We need to understand how this thing is spreading or whatever. What do you need? And they said, we need data. We need information. We need data. And so we talked a lot about that and, and you know, tried to get them the information they, they needed. And they said, well, we'll take our postdocs and we'll, we'll fund them to do this work. We'll, we'll pivot. We'll shift. And it was really an extraordinary thing. They stopped their research right in the middle of the pandemic. Well, not in the middle, but on the early stages, you know, and said, okay, we'll redirect our resources now to understanding, you know, how this thing is spreading and, and so on. So that was kind of early on, I would say, um, where we tried to convene these groups and really, you know, get like get the National Academies involved, where we started the Standing Committee on Infectious Diseases and so on. We needed a place to go to get very rapid turnaround information. And of course, the academies, what I just said, seems anathema to them because it's like, well, their, their consensus studies are like a year and a half. We said, no, we want to stand up a group that's at the ready in case there's a question that comes. We want to be able to send it to the academies, these, these group of experts, and say, okay, give us your best opinion in the next 24, 36 hours of what do you think we ought to do? Not policy, uh, but, but you know, just answering questions about the spread of disease, about the nature of disease, and, and so on and so forth. So we, we set that thing up. So there's so many things going on. We were looking at getting universities maybe that had facilities where they could get certified to do testing. Uh, because this is a key thing, you know, how do you know if you have the virus? Well, we weren't set up to have all these testing facilities around the country. Well, universities have laboratories and stuff. The challenge was getting the reagents that were needed and also getting the rapid certification so that people go, go in and get tested for the, the virus. So we were working like 15 different things at the same time, detailing people at the National Response Command Center that FEMA set up to, you know, boots on the ground there, looking at modeling, looking at, you know, you know getting PPE and stuff, uh, rapid manufacturing, turning like in World War II, you know, retooling uh, certain manufacturers of, I guess, I don't know whether it was, whether it was spirits or whatever, you know, to manufacture uh, hand lotion and sanitizer and all these kinds of things. So 
so yeah, there was just a lot going on. Sorry to just. No, no, it's good. I mean, it's good to get that background. But I, you know, I do have I have a couple, you know, specific sure. areas I want to drill down on. One's the Coronavirus Task Force, and the other's the National Academies Committee. Yeah. Um, so one thing, you know, I I've led a, a, a comparative international uh, assessment of science advice in the pandemic, and one of the things that stands out about the U.S. response, and I think, I mean, I think this is built into the fabric that goes back, you know, all the way to George Bush, but there there's no mechanism for eliciting a high level scientific advice on policy issues. Um, and so, you know, one thing I noted that the coronavirus task force that you mentioned and became a part of, um, I think this is correct, that it was, it was, uh, membership was all political appointees, except for one, which was Anthony Fauci, um, at the time, who was not a political appointee. And I just wonder if you have thoughts on, um, you know, if, if you could go into a time machine to 2005 and write congressional legislation, you know, what sort of a mechanism could the White House have used um, to, you know, again, not to make political decisions, but to bring science into informing policy? Is there is there a better structure? Well, I, I, it's a very good question. I think it's a question of whether you have them at that table or you have CDC and, and HHS and NIH and NSF and myself and so on reaching out to the scientific community themselves, which which in fact happened a lot. You know, so there definitely was science input being provided, but those scientists were not at that table as part of the task force, um, but it was definitely being informed by, and that, that's part of the reason we created that standing committee is to make sure that we have the best science minds in the world, uh, you know, engaging in this kind of thing. One of the other things that I did, and I, I have a chronology of it somewhere, I think it was started in February of 2019, I started convening a very informal discussion of, of my counterparts around the world. Um, science ministers, so on and so forth, science advisors to prime ministers or whatever. It was a very informal thing. I did not want it to become formal because I wanted us to just talk. And it wasn't about policy. It was more about, okay, what are you guys learning about the virus? How are you fast-tracking funding? Are you creating special funding opportunities where you can get money out the door very, very quickly? It wasn't national policy about like, you know, immigration or anything like that. It was much more science-focused. And it grew to, I think, about 17 different nations. And we had calls uh, probably on a weekly basis, uh, 6 a.m. Eastern time, as I remember. But we had you know, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. We had Europe and so on in the EU. And it was really, really good. The problem, the only drawback was we weren't allowed to use video conferencing at the White House. So people you know, couldn't really see each other, you know, and and. You know, just phone calls or it's a challenge. But anyway, that was one of the ways that we kind of brought the international science community, the science advisors, and and by extension, their own scientific advisors into the fray, into the mix um, to uh, to give advice. But but I do think there was good science at the table. It's just that, that you know, um, I think there were a lot of sensitive issues. And of course, a lot of this stuff, um, I don't know if it was classified, but we met in the situation room pretty much all the time. And it's it's would have taken a while, I think, to get people cleared to come in to do that. The other thing, of course, is I think, as you know, Roger, if you bring in certain types of, of advisors, whether it's, it becomes a FACA committee or something like that, then there's a lot of red tape you have to go through. So I think we want to minimize the, the, the bureaucracy of getting people to the table and having these conversations. But that was not something I was ever involved with about in terms of how this thing ought to be structured or whatever. They just put it together. Um, so, so the National Academies Committee that you referred to, and it was, you know, as a long title, something about 21st century medicine and so on, but it was hastily put together. And as I recall, it had 25, you know, very eminent, smart, even brilliant people on the committee. And it was very active for, I, you know, I think about eight weeks. 
um, mm -hmm. and it would get um, queries um, from the letterhead of OSTP and HHS um, on a, a range of topics and um, ask for, you know, I guess, rapid fire scientific assessments. Um, and then that committee, um, at least in the public, from the public side, disappeared. Um, I know it still exists, and it's but but its its role in providing science advice in the pandemic seemed to end pretty abruptly. And I was wondering if you have any insight as to as to what happened yeah. there. Yeah. So what happened was uh, OSTP's role after, as you say, after about I don't know eight ten weeks or whatever, uh, we did that jointly with ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response in HHS. So it was a joint thing with OSTP and ASPR. And then our role at OSTP started to shift a little bit, or quite a bit, actually, uh, into these, these other things in terms of, uh, you know, not so much this rapid fire thing. Of course, Deb Burks came on board, and, uh, and, and Tony was there, Tony Fauci was there, but Deb Burks came on board. So there was this other sort of um, kind of group within the White House who was focusing on these things. And so I, we, we basically shifted the responsibility of managing that committee or managing the interaction of that committee over to ASPR. Um, because we had, like I said, we had taken the lead for about two and a half months, but our role was changing, uh, shifting much more toward, okay, how do we help folks deal with this? Can we get universities involved with testing and things like that? Uh, and then uh, ASPR, which is, you know, this was more their domain, this emergency preparedness and response. It was much more appropriate for them to steward the the interaction after that. So there was no sort of, you know, I mean, it, like I said, it kept going, but uh, but our role changed. Yeah, is it fair to say? I mean, again, as an outsider, that that OSTP um, played a you know a secondary role in pandemic response and was more focused on the pandemic impact on the research community. I, I think you know it depends on how you look at it. I guess you know. Um, um, OSTP overall, I mean, it's a policy shop. So, you know, we are a policy shop. And I think that we played a, a really important role in some areas and a more of a secondary role in other areas. So I think it, on balance, I think we did the right, we did the right things based on our, our mission and our role and, and, and our capabilities. For, for example, we detailed two extremely smart people, one who's a physician, the other one who's a Navy nurse over to um, the uh, uh, National Response Command Center. And they did an unbelievable work there. I mean, they were literally working 20 hours a day. And so that was on the front lines and they were OSTP people. Um, other things we did, you know, well, you said, well, it's maybe more of a secondary role. So we, we sort of did what was needed, I would say. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I, I think we, we hit the sweet spot, yeah. Yeah, so so as you know, in the last, um, certainly in the last few weeks, um, there's been a lot of attention paid to the origins of, of COVID right. and whether it, uh, it, there's a possibility that it emerged from research related activities and whether that research was at least in part funded by the US government. Um, and uh, the US intelligence community um, was mandated by Congress to release uh, some intelligence. They released a summary and they say that it's plausible that it could have had a natural origin or it could have been a research related incident. Um, and that, so, you know, looking back at the historical record, now there's been a whole bunch of FOIA requests and, um, you know, people are starting to talk. Um, it's clear that that in the White House, this possibility was discussed as early, you know, as, as the second half of January 2020. Mm -hmm. And so what was your exposure to these discussions? And I mean, it would seem that OSTP would be, a, you know, a, a proper place to talk about research policy um, that may yeah. have, you know, biosafety risks. So what, what was right. what was your recollection of those those days? And yeah, I had written a letter and I don't have the date. My office is all packed up here. As you know, I'm headed to Illinois here in a couple of yeah. weeks. I all my stuff is packed, but I do have a chronology. 
I wrote a letter to Marsha McNutt, the um, the president of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, asking for um, a, a, a sense or asking them to to find out what. Sorry, not for them to find out, but to to have a mechanism where we could start to understand the origin of of the disease. And it basically, people say, "Well, you know, why did you do that then?" Well, we were really, really buried with the rapid response, making decisions about what to do with cruise ships and things like that. But on the other hand, we were also like, how did this happen? What in the world is going on? It, it was just that, uh, what in the world, how, how did this occur? And so it was the obvious thing to do is to say, okay, let's start doing this because of course, uh, you know, just like any forensic investigation, um, information starts to, you know, change and morph over time and people's memories fade and, and, and evidence, if you call it that, with a lowercase e, uh, might might be destroyed or might change its nature or whatever, be lost or whatever. So it's like the earlier we can get in there and start asking this question, the better off we are. And that was really what motivated us to do that. It was never, you know, and of course, OSDP is not an investigative body or anything like that. It was more from a scientific point of view of, my God, this is this is a global pandemic. How in the, how in the heck did this occur? And so that was really what motivated that. But as far as follow-ons and things, we weren't really, I wasn't involved uh, at all. I think there were maybe some of the folks in OSTP that dealt a little bit more on the national security side were. And I, of course, met with uh, national security council folks at various times to have conversations about this and whether they were finding evidence uh, sort of in the open literature as to whether you know, there was evidence that some work had been done, you know, several months prior to this uh, and so on. But we we didn't ever have a real strong focus, I would say, on that, uh, other than that, just that early question of the National Academies of, you know, um, how, how do we go about determining um, what, what happened? Where'd this come from? Yeah. So what was the what was the view then inside? Because um, there's, there's a notable press conference, I think it was April 17th, um, where Anthony Fauci, um, cited a paper, the proximal origins paper that, um, you know, it right. turns out he, he had a role in helping to commission. Um, but I think it was the very next day, uh, Dr. Fauci wasn't there. And Donald Trump said, yeah, you know, it came from a lab. And so <laughs> there, there was obviously a, a difference of view inside at the highest levels of the White House. Were you, you exposed to any of those differences? Not really. Uh, it, to be perfectly honest, the, in, the, in the coronavirus task force, there was the the there were the key players, the secretaries, um, head of F, uh, head of a CDC, and so on, the secretary level people. I was sort of in that secondary ring outside yeah. of, of that. So no, not not really. Um, no, I wasn't. I wasn't really involved with that. I didn't even really hear many conversations. We were so busy working on all these other things. Now, some of the folks in OSDP, I suspect, were maybe more in the loop. But for me, I, I really wasn't. Um, I didn't really hear about that kind of thing. I didn't have any real personal opinion at that point. I had no basis to make a judgment of whether it was natural. Or I've read those kinds of things with interest, but it was like, well, you know, we. we there doesn't seem to be a definitive answer here and the genomic sequencing shows one thing, but other things suggest, I mean, circumstantial evidence suggests other things. And it's like, well, I don't have time to worry about that. <laughs> that wasn't my job. Yeah. So I have to ask, what, how have your views evolved on that particular topic? As you've had some more time to, to sit and think and read and. You know, I, 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 again, I don't want to make an uninformed conjecture. I, my gut probably tells me that it did come from the lab, probably accidentally uh, released. Um, 
but you know that's just that's just a gut feeling i mean it, it, people talk about the sequencing and things some people say well you know there's no way this could have happened in nature based on what the sequence looks like and other people say well you know it, it when it jumps from species to species or whatever it go, undergoes these changes um i think that's that's a good science question it's how science works there's maybe not a, a definitive answer uh of, of where it came from um and how if if it was engineered i i don't know that we'll ever know that i i don't maybe maybe someday science will tell us that we we've seen you know murder convictions overturned 30 years later because dna testing you know so maybe there's something in the future that will provide that information but uh, there's been some odd things that have happened in in china to some of the scientists uh and it just makes you wonder but um but yeah, uh, and of course, one of the key things was having China provide the information that was needed, and that that didn't happen. So, um, so who knows if we'll ever know? Right, right. Um, so, what about your views on on uh, biosafety and regulation of of you know so called gain of function? Let's just call it risky risky biological research. Um, is that something that you think that, uh, you know, talking about today's policy, regardless of the origins debate, yeah. um, I mean, we're, we're a pretty inventive and creative species. Um, scientists are great, and, but, you know, they can get up to some, some mischief in, in labs. Um, you know, do, do you think that OSTP or maybe Congress has a role in, in you know, taking a closer look at gain-of-function research uh, going on? Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's important to have policies in place, and this is true for things like AI, Everything has a positive and negative, right? I mean, you know, nuclear physics has some um, an extraordinarily positive benefits in, in human medicine and so on, but then some very, very bad <laughs> things otherwise. And so, uh, you, you know, somebody said one time, you, you can't sort of uh, prevent unlocking the secrets of nature, but but I think you you can have policies in place to to make sure that any research that's done is done as safely as possible. Now, it sounds like a generic statement that anyone you know, would be expected to say. But if you say, look, you know, gain of function is just so dangerous that it shouldn't be done. Um, well, but if it turns out that that our, our adversaries are doing gain of function for military purposes, then we need to know something about how that stuff works to be able to counter it. So uh, there may be a very appropriate places for this to happen. Uh, you may say, well, maybe not in universities, maybe in very restricted government facilities, um, something like that. But I do think I do think we, from a sort of a humanity perspective, owe it to humanity to make sure that that these kinds of, of uh, you know, research activities that really could spell tremendous doom for humanity are, are really limited to the extent that, that, that they can be. Uh, and and conducted with great safety, but I, I think the problem is our adversaries don't share those values. They don't share the safety. We've seen that all over the place. Uh, it happens in in the in, in the Russian Federation. It happens other places where you know you just sort of skirt the rules, and all of a sudden, thirty years later, you have all these people dying from cancer because you know you saw it in in Russian submarines. I mean, so it's just it's yeah, it's it's a very tough policy question. But I do think there has to be has to be some um, some policy that controls that. Yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I have one other topic I want to dive into before I let you go. Um, and that's and, and you know, the, the issues surrounding the U.S. National Climate Assessment kind of were you know, obviously overshadowed by the pandemic and its importance. Right. But um, during your time, there was a lot of drama in the National Climate Assessment. And, um, you know, I've, I'm on record. You know, I, I wrote my Ph.D. dissertation almost 30 years ago on the law that established the National Climate Assessment. Um, and, and from the outset, um, I thought that locating it in the White House was just a bad idea um, because 
um, you know, even before President Trump came into office, you know, Republicans and Democrats have, have seen it as too tempting uh, uh, to, to meddle in and, and try to put the thumb on the scale, so to speak. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about the U.S. National Climate Assessment, your experience with that, you know, the, the, the changes in leadership that occurred and, and, you know, what's your view about locating a science assessment in, in ultimately an office headed by political appointees? Mm-hmm. No, it's really another excellent question, Roger. Um, so let me, let me put a, a little bit of a context on this. So when I came in to um, OSCP, um, I, I said, look, we've had four national climate assessments. The last one was released right around Thanksgiving of 2018 uh, before, I, uh, before I came uh, to the White House. And I said, look, um, there's been four very different processes used. Uh, it's been going for 30 plus years. I want to call time out and do an assessment of the, of the process by which this thing is put together. And I said, look, this is gonna cause a delay. It's gonna, it's gonna take time. It's probably gonna delay the fifth assessment. I don't care. As a scientist, I think, and I'm all about review, peer review and so on, we need to have an assessment, an independent assessment done of the process, not the report, not the science, but of the process. So we asked the Science Technology Policy Institute to do this for us. It's an FFRDC and uh, they did a really, really excellent job. And they found out that Overall, the fourth process uh, for the fourth assessment was actually, you know, quite good. It kind of asymptoted. The first three were kind of all over the place. They were in some sense experimental. In one case, involved lawsuits and stuff. The fourth one looked like it really kind of hit the hit the mark, but there were some things that needed to be improved. And so um, we said, okay, you know, we're going to do that. And um, I had brought in, in the process of bringing in Betsy Weatherhead, I met with her at the AMS annual meeting, American Meteorological Society annual meeting in January of 20, um, 20, uh, when was it? 2020, is that right? Yeah, 2020, I guess it was. 2020. Yeah, right at the time the pandemic was starting. And uh, I thought she was the right person. She was very, very, you know, good scientist, well-respected, sort of a neutral party, uh, somebody that was really good. And I thought she was, she is brilliant. Um, And it took me like, 11 months to get her there. We had to bring her in to an agency, I think, detail her over and so on. And then, of course, I think she came, I don't know, September, October, August, somewhere in the fall of 2020. And um, and so I was criticized for why did it take so long to bring her there? Well, because it takes forever to get anything done in the government. You know, there was no hidden agenda, nothing. We just couldn't get her there. And of course, then the election happened. And so game over. Um, I think it's a good idea to put that assessment somewhere else um because for the very reason you mentioned um now if you put it in an, an agency i mean the heads of of all the you know agencies are political appointees so do you put it in the university do you put it in a th- where do you put it i don't know if i have a really good answer to that you look at nasa and nsf and then potentially NOAA coming up to be an independent agency well they're independent in the sense they're not in a cabinet department but they still are headed by presidential appointees um, I would say that there's there's less of a of a sort of a pull on somebody at say the director of NSF or the administrator of NASA than there is on somebody actually at the White House, and I do believe that there's there would be value in in some some way finding a, a more sort of neutral ground for the for the assessment. Yeah. Now I, I don't mean to impugn the integrity assessment. Um, I think it's done with with great care and so on. So I only say that because. For the reason you mentioned, that there is a temptation, and and in some cases more than a temptation to sort of you know direct things, whatever. Um, 
And so I just for the good of science, I think, you know, a, a more neutral place. The National Academies, I mean, here's the thing, Roger, the problem, the problem is there's really no sort of neutral ground out there anymore. Um, right. And I, I, I don't mean that in terms of science. I think scientists do act with great integrity. But when you're talking about something like this, I think there's there's a, so I, I think what, what ought to happen is there ought to be an effort put forward to look at the very good question you raise and say, OK, what should be done here? Does it make sense to move it? If not, where? If so, whatever, you know, um, right. to really look deeply at it. Um, yeah. And this is I mean, this is ultimately kind of a, a, a policy process question, not a, a substantive scientific question, because right. as right. you say, it is it is exceedingly difficult, particularly on topics like climate change, to to convene a group of experts that's viewed as legitimate and authoritative by people on all sides of the issue. Right. Um, it late, very late in in the administration. Um, there was, I think it was five, I don't know if they were memos or little reports on climate that were put out. Um, and, you know, they had, I think they had White House letterhead. Um, I didn't follow it super closely. It wasn't particularly um, significant. It, it was a little bit more drama, but I mean, what was the story with that? And, you know, you know, what happened there? And, and uh, you know, how did that f jibe with uh, how scientists viewed what OSTP should be doing and, and NOAA and so on? Yeah, so... Um... So there, there were, yeah, it, it's a personnel issue, but I'll talk about what was public. So yeah. what happened was there were some, um, like one or two pager flyer, I mean, they're not flyers, but the, you know, info pay, info sheets or whatever, yeah. put yeah. on a website that had the OSTP, possibly the White House, but the OSTP logo on there. And that was um, completely unauthorized. There'd been no process that I was aware of. And so this was very bad news and it's something that probably was illegal and so i talked to to legal counsel and stuff we determined that we needed to um take some personnel action because of this um because to me again protecting integrity of, of science and protecting protecting the integrity of, of process and and stuff like that is very very critically important and i knew nothing about this and and other people basically knew nothing or very little about it so we decided we had to take action it was very unfortunate. Um, I didn't enjoy doing that, but it's just something you have to do. And it was the right thing to do. And um, so, yeah. Um, there, was there, are, there are good processes. I mean, NOAA GFDL, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, uh, maintains a tropical cyclone assessment page, yeah. um, which is peer reviewed and, you know, the media doesn't often read it, but it's it's good science and it's, you know, it's not involved in these sort of uh, controversies, so. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it was it was the, I, none of this had anything to do with the content. Frankly, I didn't right. ever read these things. I didn't know what the content was. I mean, I looked at the headings right. and stuff. It's like, it was about the process. And the process, right. it violated uh, a, a very important process that the public trust is there and it was not there. And so, and also use of the logo, which was completely wrong. And I said, okay, game over. And uh, that was it. So, yeah. All right. So uh, two last questions. So one is, um, if if President Trump is is elected again, or another Republican, or even a Democrat, and you get invited back, would you go? I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so. I'm I'm headed to the University of Illinois, where I'm going to be uh, working closely with the administration, uh, uh, Robert Jones and Tim Colleen, two two really outstanding leaders. Uh, I'm going to be teaching classes there. I'm working on some big ideas that I pitched to them. And, uh, you know, I, I threw in for a couple of presidencies, LSU, and I got down to the final two or three. Um, and I realized that really my heart is is being a professor. 
I think I'm sort of done with the politics. I, I would never uh, turn down the opportunity I had before. It was just an extraordinary experience. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat uh, previously. But I think going forward, uh, no, I don't really have any desire to do that. I want to I want to just continue to do what I think I can do best, and that is be an academia and, and serve uh, serve uh, in that capacity. Excellent. So last question. Um, so I think, you know, a, a lot of folks read my stuff who are, you know, at the science policy interface. And, you know, what, what advice would you give to early career, mid-career people who may be on, you know, a similar trajectory to what you were, or even, you know, not even as high as the White House, but, you know, aspire to work where science and policy meet? overlaid by politics what you know and I don't know how to best frame you know what do you wish you knew before you went or you know what did you learn in the school of hard knocks that you want to share right what's 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 the guidance no that's, that's a great question Roger I get asked that a lot you know and the good thing is I think a lot of people um, a lot of early career individuals uh, even as grad students are very interested in policy um, you know, 30 years ago, you know, your dad was you know really super active so I was like well if you can't get a can't get a job at a good university. Well, I guess you could go dirty your hands in policy. And of course, now it's seen as a very, very, uh, uh, you know, wonderful um, uh, kind of career goal and career pathway and, and so on. Uh, and so I, what I tell people is, um, you know, I never took a course in policy. I learned this all by doing. Uh, I tell them, look, number one, if you can take a course in policy or a few courses in policy and political science or whatever, do that. It's really good. Number two, just jump into the pool. You don't have to wait and take a course. You know, maybe volunteer at your local congressional office or something like that. Just, just get involved. I talked to him also number three about policy fellowships, AAAS, the White House fellows. There's all kinds of really good policy activities out there that they can get involved with, and they don't have to have a background in policy. They can, you know, they can learn it as they go. But to not feel like they have to have it all figured out, you know, before they jump in. Um, and so it's a real noble pursuit, I think, and, and it's something I really strongly encourage people to do. Um, you know, I learned as I went, I, I think, uh, you know, going to the White House, I knew OSTP, I'd worked with OSTP, but until you're actually there, you really don't, I think, completely understand how the place works, and especially sort of the, the read between the lines. You can read read the policy about OSTP, read documents on it, but when you get there, you, you understand how it works. And Neil Lane, of course, wrote this beautiful piece, and he, he shares it with all the the directors of OSTP, it's just a personal note from him to them about his experience and how things work. And that was very helpful in, in guiding me along. Um, so I, I really I love it. The, love the fact that a lot of people really do want to do policy and say, look, you, you don't have to do bench science for 20 years. You can, you can, there's lots of different options, lots of different routes. And frankly, that's one of the reasons, Roger, why I wrote this book called Demystifying the Academic Research Enterprise. And in there, and, and the, the idea of that was, you know, I've spent almost 40 years of my career teaching people, talking to people about how budgets are set, you know, intellectual property, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, why don't I just write this down? And that way it can be put on the front end of their career. To your point, the early career folks, they can benefit from that. They can understand what policy is about. How does it work? And they're not going to become deep experts by reading a chapter in a book, but it might entice them to say, okay, okay, I think I might be interested in that. And I give suggestions about how they could, you know, then sort of act on that interest that they have. And um, so hopefully that's gonna be useful to, to folks. Um, and it's, it's being published open access, free of charge. It'll be, uh, you can buy a hard copy of MIT Press if you want to, but it, it'll be totally free on the web from the MIT uh, Press website. I'll share it around. Well, Calvin, yeah. I appreciate your time. This has been great. Uh, well, great, great, Roger. Thank great you for to hear all about the work your... you do. Yeah, I appreciate you and, uh, and, and uh, 
this is really good. And I hope you continue to do these. I know you will, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really yeah, I will. All right. So uh, have a great day and uh, thanks. Thanks for appearing. You bet. Yeah.